You are listening to Adventures in Buddhism. I'm your host, Morris Sullivan. In this episode, I'm going to talk about how to navigate our relationships, especially difficult relationships with people we really care about. I want to introduce this with a story from the Lotus Sutra about a young man who, at a young age, ran away from home. He soon became destitute and traveling around the country trying to eke out a living, he accidentally returned to his homeland. Since he had left, his father had become a very successful, wealthy man. For many years, he had been wishing for his son's return, and now as his life was coming closer to an end, he feared that his wealth would be scattered with no one to inherit it. Well, his son came to the palace looking for work, and the man recognized him right away and was overjoyed. But his son saw this grand palace, and he was afraid. He was very worried about this. He didn't realize that he was in his father's house. He had spent so long living in poverty, he thought he had no business at such a grand place, and so he started to leave. His father sent servants to bring him back, and when he saw this, he was terrified. He thought they were coming to accuse him of a crime, and he fainted from fear that he was going to be dragged off to prison or worse. His father realized that he was going to have to be more subtle if he wanted to get reacquainted with his son. So he had some other servants dress up in soiled rags and seek out his son, and they offered him a job cleaning up trash and filth. His son felt up to that task, and he accepted the job. But over several years, the man had his son given more and more responsibility. Finally, his son had reached the point where he was able to accept the man's kindness. Once he was able to accept his father's kindness and love, his father could reveal the truth of his birth to him. We're a lot like that son. When we first come to spiritual practice, most of us are just looking for relief from our stress and can't imagine that we can achieve a high level of wisdom and compassion. So we work with the teachings that we feel are within our grasp. Over time, we develop greater levels of understanding and a greater capacity to be kind and compassionate. And then finally, we can accept the kindness of a Buddha who wants to help us also become Buddhas. So I'm a father. My son lives in Texas, uh, and uh, uh, you know, so it's significant to me too. My own father passed away about 25 years ago, uh, and you know, it's great to have days where we set them aside to remember our ancestors uh, if they're departed, and remind us to treasure those relationships if our parents are still with us. Uh, my relationship with my father wasn't a great one. Some of you know that. Uh, but without him, I wouldn't be here. And over the years, a lot of people have talked to me about their parents, and I know that processing those relationships, uh, either with your parents or as parents with your children, can be a challenge. Uh, when the Buddha gave his first sermon, he explained the Four Noble Truths, and the first of those truths is that afflictions and difficulties are facts of life. And unfortunately, we don't get to decide where those afflictions and difficulties arise. And so sometimes those particular facts of life can be closely associated with the people that are most important to us. Uh, the Buddha was undoubtedly aware of this. His relationship with his own father seems to have been pretty good, 
but there were certainly some ups and downs. His father was very generous and took good care of Godama, uh, but uh, King Sadodana and his son had very different ideas about what sort of life that the heir to the throne should lead. So after his birth, after the, uh, so <clears throat> those of you who are new to this, the, the person we call the Buddha became the Buddha uh, at age 35. Um, and his given name was, we'll call him Gotama. You'll re hear him referred to as Sakyamuni. He was, um, uh, Sakyas was the clan that he was born into. Gotama was his given name. And so after his birth, the king had a feast and he invited a number of sages and Brahmins over to bless his son and make predictions about his future. And the consensus among these holy men was that he would either grow up to be a great king who would unite all of India under one rule, or he'd be a great religious leader who would free all humanity. Well, the king loved the idea that his son Gotama would grow up to be a great king. He was not so excited about the other career path. Uh, you know, and, and you know, you think, well, you know, unite all of India or free all beings. I mean, that would be an easy one. But you know, if you're a king, you kind of want the heir to the throne to be a king too, I guess. And so, when Gotama was growing up, King Sadodana took great pains to make sure that he had all material comforts. And part of that was in an effort to make being a king attractive to him and to steer him away from the religious life. And so the Buddha later explained, described what his life was like. He said, I lived in refinement, utmost refinement. My father had gave me multiple palaces and he had lotus ponds made in each palace. One where red lotuses bloomed, one where white lotuses bloomed, and one where blue lotuses bloomed, all for my sake. I wore the finest clothing, and a white sunshade was held over me day and night to protect me from cold, heat, dust, and dew. Even his servants ate better food than most people. I mean, that's the kind of life he lived. Um, and it didn't work, obviously. Fortunately for us, it didn't work. Because even though he was endowed with such good fortune, he realized that he was subject to aging, illness, death, and all forms of stress and difficulties. And he said, as he noticed this, his intoxication with the, the life of luxury dropped away entirely. He says, so when I was still young and endowed with the blessings of youth, I shaved off my hair and beard, though my father wished otherwise and was grieving with tears on his face, and I put on the ochre robe and left the home life. Another story says that after his enlightenment, uh, the king heard that the Buddha was teaching nearby. And so he sent messenger after messenger to ask him to come home for a visit. And one by one, the messengers would arrive and they would listen to the Buddha speak. And instead of going back to the palace, they'd just stay there and ordain and become monks. Well, this didn't make the king too happy either, but eventually uh, the Buddha finally sent word that he would come home for a visit. And so his father planned a big celebration because he expected his son to arrive in high style. I mean, he was this highly esteemed Buddha, you know, the first recognized, fully enlightened human being. And the king was quite unhappy 
to see the Buddha walking in barefoot as a common beggar, going from house to house with an alms bowl. I mean, imagine the humiliation as a father of seeing this. But the king eventually became one of the Buddha's followers. And so the happy ending to that story is that he, he became uh, pretty awakened also. The Buddha was also a father. Um, if you know the story, he actually left and went into homelessness shortly after his son was born. His relationship with his son was not exactly a traditional one. Uh, when he was born, Gotama named him Rahula, which means fetter, like noose, because he felt that the birth of his son tied him more firmly to the life that he really wanted to lead. He really wanted to go into homelessness, live the holy life, and he felt his son would keep him there. But he realized the importance of the holy quest. You know, he wanted to see if there was a way out of the cycle of stress and difficulty. And part of what motivated this was his son's birth, and he realized that his son, even if he raised him in luxury, he was gonna experience pain, and his father was getting older and he was gonna die, and you know he wanted to get him to be released from the cycle also, and all of that kind of stuff. So when he went into homelessness in order to live the holy life, this was really an act of compassion on his part. Now sometimes people will ask me, oh, isn't it terrible that he abandoned his family? Well, he wasn't abandoning anybody. I mean, his son was now the heir to a throne. You know, he was going to be very well taken care of. And, and also, you know, he really had a higher purpose in mind, and he wanted to include everyone in this. So his son was seven years old when the Buddha returned to, to home uh, as the Buddha. And his son ordained. He wanted to follow in his father's footsteps, literally. And so he was ordained at age seven, uh, which didn't make his mother very happy. So they had a big conversation about that. And so now you, you, children will be accepted as novices at age seven, but they won't be fully ordained, meaning they can't just leave and go home uh, until they're 18. So the Buddha seems to have taken a lot of time uh, explaining the choice that he made. And, and, and Rahula eventually, with the Buddha's instruction, close instruction, became an arahant himself, a fully enlightened person. So one of my favorite sutras from the Pali Canon, that's the original scriptures uh, that come from Buddha's discourses and conversations with people close to him uh, is taken from an early instruction that Buddha gave to Rahula. And if you read it, you think maybe Rahula, well, Rahula was clearly in trouble when they had this conversation and probably had told a lie about something because the Buddha starts off talking about how shameful it is to tell a lie. And then he uses this as a way to teach him something really important. He taught him about mindfulness. This was Rahula's first lesson in mindfulness. And the Buddha explained it to him in a very practical way. He first asked him, he said, what is a mirror for? And Rahula says, well, a mirror is for reflection. And the Buddha said, you know, you can use your mind as a mirror to reflect on your actions, much like you would hold up a mirror, a mirror to reflect on your face.
He said, whenever you want to do a mental action, a verbal action, or a bodily action, you should reflect on it. This action that I want to do, would it lead to self-harm or to the harm of others with painful results for anyone? And if on such reflection you know that this act would lead to harm, don't do it. But if on reflection you know that this action would have good results, then by all means, go forward. And then he explained to Rahula that all the enlightened ones of the past, present, and future had repeatedly reflected on their actions in this way. So actions of body, speech, or mind. This thing that I'm going to do, is it going to cause harm? If so, don't do it. This thing that I'm doing, is it causing harm to anyone? Myself or others? If so, stop. This thing that I just did, what were the consequences? Did it cause any harm to me or anyone else? And if so, don't do it again. Very practical way of looking at the practice. So I remember a number of paternal lectures that I got as a kid. My father at his best had some moments of wisdom, but as parental sermons from history go, this is probably one of the best. And we can apply this idea of reflection to our relationships with, with everyone and everything that we encounter, including our relationships with troublesome people like my father. You know, we can reflect on our actions of mind, speech, and body, the thoughts and attitudes that arise when we're remembering this person or interacting with this person, things that we say with, when we're with them, things we do when we're acting out of patterns of behavior that formed as a result of that relationship. And then these thoughts, if we build on them and nurture them and exercise them, then look, do they lead to affliction of ourselves or others? And if so, redirect them in kinder, more compassionate ways. And similarly, what about things we're gonna say and things that we're gonna do? Would they cause harm to ourselves and others? And if so, we can cultivate more skillful responses to our circumstances. And then we can also think about this, like how accurate an image do I hold in my mind? And then use our sort of internal mirror to make sure that our reflection is truthful, realistic, and not stained by a bunch of dust and other stuff. So when I was in my 20s, I, the wounds that left by my relationship with my father were still pretty painful. And I was trying to be a father myself, my, son had been born and I didn't have a lot of positive role models to go on or at least I didn't think I did and I blamed him for a lot of my state of mind which at the time wasn't great I was sort of socially uh, very isolated uh, you know dealing with with difficulties with interacting with other people and stuff like that and I kind of blamed that on the way I grew up and I refused to speak to my father for several years but I was doing some pretty heavy-duty spiritual exploration at the time and delving into Buddhism. This is when I was, was really getting serious about Buddhism, especially Zen and meditating. And in the process, I came across this practice called Nikon, which actually comes from Jodo Shinshu Buddhism. And in this practice, you analyze your relationships in a real kind of specific way, starting with your mother, and then your father, looking at them in terms of what you receive from them, you know, in terms of, by way of support, and what did you give, 
And what trouble did you cause? And so when I did this, examining my relationship with my father this way, I realized that I'd gotten a lot from him. Um, I didn't really want to see that. You know, I, I really liked this story I had in my mind that he was the bad guy and I was the good guy. And, but when I looked at it closely, I realized I got a lot from my dad. He taught me a lot of important things, the, the basics of carpentry. I actually know how to drive a nail because of my dad. He was a very creative guy in a lot of ways and I inherited a lot of that. He'd grown up in a working class family. His own father had died when he was 15. But before that, he was a real spare the rod and spoil the child kind of guy. But for most of his life, my father was working too hard to give much time to anything creative. But he encouraged my creativity. You know, my parents, when I wanted to learn to play the guitar. My parents scrimped and saved and got me a guitar, stuff like that. The exercise also had me look at problems that I had caused my father. And that was kind of a, a wake up call too. But there was kind of a nice moment that came out of that. I remembered when I first learned how to drive. I mean, within days of learning how to drive, I backed over a curb. I thought it would be a fine thing. I could just back over the curb. Well, it wasn't such a fine thing. Broke the exhaust manifold on the car. And so I drove it home, boom, 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 you know, two o'clock in the morning, you know, cause I was out with my band you know, snuck in the house. And the next morning I wake up, my dad's kind of tugging on my toe and he goes, what'd you do to the car? <laughs> so I explained it and he goes, oh, okay, well let's figure it out. And I thought, man, I'm gonna be in big trouble. But weirdly enough, you know, he kind of, it was one of the nicest moments I experienced with him as a teenager. We went to the auto parts place together and bought an exhaust manifold and he showed me how to change it. And, and we really had kind of a good time doing it. So as a result of doing this analysis of this relationship, I started talking to him again. He had been after me to talk, you know, he really wanted pictures of my son and stuff like that, you know, his grandchild and all of that. And so I, I, I did those things. Now, he did not turn into Henry Fonda. You know, he was still the guy he was. And so we developed a relationship, but it was kind of at arm's length because, you know, needed to be safe. But, um, but I, it enabled me to let go of something that I'd been holding on to really tightly and that was really doing me no good at all, which was my anger. And recognizing that he wasn't all bad all, helped me let go of a lot of animosity toward him but it also taught me a lot about relationships in general. Uh, there was an eighth century monk named Shanti Deva who gave a long teaching on compassion. And he pointed out something really interesting. He said, Buddhas need non-Buddhas. We need difficult people in our lives to help us develop the wisdom and compassion that we need for spiritual growth. If everybody around you was perfect, well, you wouldn't need to be perfect. You're always taken care of, right? Seeing my relationships more clearly helped me to develop compassion for other people too. If we can find a sense of goodness, even in people who gave us a lot of trouble, then we can more easily find it in others. And it can be easier to forgive ourselves when we notice our own imperfections. 
This sort of mindfulness can help us transcend our tendency to anger. Anger about our difficult relationships keeps us stuck in the past. And so we lose sight of the present moment and forget to pay attention to what is right here and what lies ahead. One of my spiritual fathers, Reverend Koyokobose, said something about this one time. He said, one's life keeps moving forward. It's like we're driving a car and you can't do that by keeping your eyes on the rear view mirror. The main thing is the road ahead. You have to look ahead to keep from crashing. In some religions and even some schools of Buddhism, you know, spiritual teachers are often treated as fathers. Those who have gone before us, even if they're flawed, often manage to pick up some wisdom along the way and out of their kindness, pass it along to us. So several years ago, a friend of mine started a discussion on social media on Father's Day by asking her friends to post something that they'd learned from their dads. And it was really interesting to see what kind of fatherly wisdom had stuck with people. So I actually copied it and saved it for moments like this one. So here's a few of them. Always be kind in good or bad situations, no matter what. And I think that's really true. There are a lot of times I've rec I have regretted being unkind, but I can't remember a single time that I've regretted being kind. Here's another one. Nothing good ever happens after midnight. <laughs> and this one, a good summertime advice, don't run on gravel wearing flip-flops. This is a lot like the Buddha's talk with, with Rahula. When in doubt, don't. And if you're gonna be dumb, you've gotta to be tough. Your eyes only see what the brain tells them to see. So there's a lot of wisdom there. As we go through life, we can encounter many difficulties. But if we keep our eyes open, let our brain show us what's actually there, then we can find a lot of sources of wisdom. So thank you, and again, happy Father's Day. Thank you for joining me for Adventures in Buddhism. I hope that this talk has helped you along your path. And I hope that, like the destitute son in the Lotus Sutra, you are finding yourself more and more capable to accept the kindness of the Buddha. I'll talk to you again soon. Now go save the world. Mm -hmm.